Welcome to the IT Career Energizer podcast. For anyone who wants to build and grow a career in IT, develop and improve your strengths and skills, be inspired and motivated by the successes of others, manage your career progression, and achieve your IT career goals. And now, your host, Phil Burgess. Welcome to episode 233 of the IT Career Energizer podcast. My guest on today's show is a UX designer and design leader who helps organizations build products for what's next. He is founder of Big Medium, a New York design studio specializing in future-friendly interfaces for artificial intelligence, connected devices, and responsive websites. He is also an author of several books, and he speaks around the world about what's next for digital interfaces. So welcome to the podcast, Josh Clark. Great to be here, Phil. Episode 233. That's amazing. That's my lucky number, by the way. Oh, is it? What it is now? (laughs) It is now. That's right. All right. We'll we'll see after how this goes. I'm happy to be here. Um, Josh, could you perhaps tell us a little bit about UX and your role as a designer? Sure. Uh, Over time, what designers call themselves tends to change. And it, it used to be back in the day in the 90s when I started doing this that I was simply a a webmaster, and then I sort of started calling myself a designer. And then user experience became uh, sort of a thing and sort of like really crafting the overall feeling and experience and flow of what people do. And more and more, I actually sort of think of myself as a product designer, really trying to understand the problems that we're trying to solve and the opportunities that technology can enter in. So it's not just about the nitty gritty of interface design and designing screens or interactions or, or voice exchanges, but really sort of trying to understand uh, in a really fine grained way what customer needs are and business needs are and how to sometimes find that non-obvious path that stitches those things together. Yeah, that's, that's interesting to hear it in terms of both the customer and the, the business need. Is there a priority or is it a bit of a mix and match in terms of how you, you bring those two together? Design, of course, is a commercial endeavor, and it always has to serve its patron. And so I think the easiest voice to hear and listen for is often the business voice. They're the ones who are building the product, of course. What that means is that sometimes designers are in a position of having to really advocate for the customer, for the user, so that business concerns don't necessarily overwhelm the customer in ways that might be cynical or or serve us as as civilians, as consumers poorly. I think that the trick, though, for uh, designers is to avoid being in an adversarial relationship with your boss or your stakeholder or your client when you discover tensions between business and user needs. And really, I think that the answer there is, is just to listen to carefully to the problems that the business is trying to solve and then understand how that fits into the customer's life and how in solving that problem that can bend to the customer's life rather than the customer having to bend to it. And it's it can be delicate work. And as I say, not always obvious. You know, but I think that the designer's job is to connect the business need with the customer need and then light that path as brightly as possible so that the, the business can't help but follow it. Yeah. So presumably sometimes that can be quite 
difficult to sort of strike that balance where you're sort of maybe trying to bring together two diametrically opposed points of view. Yeah, well, I I think that you're seeing that right now as we look at a lot of the uh, ad-driven tech businesses, you know, where where you're looking at something where you've got the the old saw, you know, if if it's free, you're not the customer, you're the product. And of course, that's something where um, in many cases, businesses can be somewhat cynical and even abusive of customers in the way that they mine their data. And, you know, I'll look at nearly every practice that Facebook has, for example, (laughs) feels, you know, absolutely irredeemable, every sort of dark pattern or just sort of poor practice, I would say. If you want to be responsible about gathering customer data, look at what Facebook is doing and then flip it on its head because you know they're really taking advantage of people, I think. So I think at a point where it's it's not just you're not just the you're not the customer, you're the product, but you're also the training data. I think that that's a case where the business model has totally overwhelmed customer need in many cases. And I think there's lots of great people who are working at Facebook, for example, to try to change that. But when the business model becomes so prevalent in a culture, it can be really hard to balance those human and customer needs with what the the business wants to do. Yeah, exactly. Um, Could you perhaps tell us a career tip that the audience may not be aware of and perhaps should be? One of the things I think I've struggled with with much of my career, and frankly still do, is something that I think is is often hard for for really anyone who cares deeply about their work and and pours a lot of themselves into it. And I think it's really it's just creating a separation between your work and yourself and and understanding you are not your work and your immense value as a human being is really completely unrelated to the worth of the things that you make. So the success or failure of a project or the presence or absence of attention or the silence or applause of an audience, you know, all of those things are are useful commentary on your work, but your work is outside of you. And so I, I think one of the things that is often important is anybody who's trying to make something that's that's being doing some kind of work that's creative whether you're a designer or a developer you're trying to make something new when you get feedback on your work you have to apply it to the things that you make not to your own self-worth because i think that especially if you want to take risks and try new things you can really quickly feel bruised when people don't respond well and i think that understanding that that success doesn't make you a better person and failure doesn't make you a worse one has been, at least for me personally, an important lesson to learn and a hard one to follow in my own career. But I I guess I'll say that there's really no no rest or satisfaction in thinking that you will finally be happy if only your work is a success. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah, that's true. It's far more than that, isn't it? It is. And it's, uh, you know, I think a lot of it is learning to approach your work with a certain detachment and accepting critique and recognizing that it is a gift that others are giving to you. And sometimes it's not always given with kindness, but even in those cases, you need to treat it that way, that this is useful information on a thing that you care about, but not on you. That's obviously something that comes with, or being able to accept that comes with a bit of experience and 
maybe a way of looking at things slightly differently. You, you mentioned detachment, which I think is quite key to it. But um, that can be quite difficult at times, can't it? It can. It's an interesting mix because this is something, as I say, you know, when it's sort of something that you're working on projects that you really care about and thinking about a lot, it, it can be hard to be detached from it. At the same time that you're sort of trying to create that separation, it also involves sort of trying to have respect and care for who is giving you the feedback and where they might be coming from. And sometimes that can be, you know, the market, (laughs) a lot of people at once, or it can be an individual. And in any case, sort of understanding, trying to understand the motivation of where that success or rejection comes from is maybe as important as the information you're getting. How How do you interpret it? How do you listen to it? Josh, can you maybe tell us about your worst career moment and what you learned from that experience? My first entrepreneurial effort was a failure, and it was a content management system. This was something that I had started before WordPress and other blog software, and the whole idea of it was that it was going to be an inexpensive system. It was like, you know, $100 for a license or something at a time when content management systems were typically bespoke things that you you paid for. This is the, around 2000 or so, so nearly 20 years ago. And, and back then, you had to essentially have someone custom build and configure your own content management system for any kind of website. And so the idea was I wanted to make a designer-friendly content management system that didn't require a lot of technical effort, but was, you know, really sort of broadly configurable and could sort of spin up a lot of the the common design patterns of the day for content sites. Not long after that, though, WordPress and other blog software emerged and and they were, you know, sort of trying to solve the same problem, but, but priced at zero. And really what I learned right over time was that sort of both the financial and creative reason for this product to exist no longer existed. And so I I closed it down. And for a long time, I thought that that was the failure, that the business didn't work. But really, I think I learned that the failure and the low part of it for me was actually the, the several years of decline that finally led to closing it. The sort of like the long kind of grinding, watching the watching it failing financially and also failing creatively, you know, that it, it wasn't finding a market and it wasn't even serving a, a need that existed anymore. And the lesson for me there in sort of those those years of just sort of feeling worse and worse about this feedback in this case that the market was giving me was simply to be more responsive to those signs and, and to admit when sort of the trajectory over time just was not going well, that some kind of an adjustment was needed, or or frankly, in this case, a a new direction. Because everything freed up for me when I let go of this project and this business, which turned out to be more of an anchor than anything else. I, I thought it would be a failure for me to give it up. And it turned out that the real failure was hanging on longer than I needed to. And it, it sort of goes back to what I was saying earlier about my earlier career advice was you know, I associated that project and that business so much with myself that the idea of giving up on it seemed impossible. Yeah. And as a result, I, I was doing real damage to myself, uh, you know, sort of like financially, professionally, emotionally. Yeah. I think it's sometimes difficult to understand or, or recognize when you've reached that point, isn't it? You hear a lot of people talking about persistence and continuing and eventually, yes, it'll work. But 
in other instances which you've just explained or described from, from your own experience, sometimes you have to just understand and recognize when to stop. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I, I think that at least for some people, and this is true for me as a maker, as someone who makes things, I, I require a certain amount of optimism to do that. And so sometimes that optimism can be a little bit blind. And I think that's sort of recognizing the signs and, and accepting that failure is okay. is a, can be a learning experience that you take from. It can be good. I know that can be a little bit of a cliche and, and lines like, you know, fail fast to help you like learn what to do next. Um, maybe are, are, are things that we hear a lot of, but failing slow can be so painful and so damaging just your sense of self that, uh, sort of like learning to spot those signs for me proved to be a really important thing and, and, and has really informed all of my sort of business and creative aspects of my career since Okay. And so moving away from your worst moment, can you perhaps tell us about your career highlight or greatest success? I've been lucky to have a fair amount of success in my career. I guess maybe thinking about sort of one of the first aha moments that I had was when sort of I landed my first big client for my design agency. And my agency is unusual, big medium. It looks and it behaves like like any, you know, sort of digital product agency as far as a client is concerned, except that I don't carry staff. So I bring together teams of people based on the project at hand, whether that's that's kind of market domain or the, the creative or technical skills that are required here. So every project is kind of bespoke and pulled together. When I was pitching my first big project, which was for People Magazine to help to, them to build their first responsive website, this was actually for Time Inc., which is the publisher of, of until recently, I guess Time Inc. Is, has been sold now, but it was at the time, you know, one of the world's biggest publishers of titles like Sports Illustrated and Time Magazine, People Magazine. And this was going to be the company's first responsive website for, uh, this was maybe um, a decade ago or so. And, uh, you know, I went in there and it was just me with this quirky little business model and this ragtag group of people that I'd pulled together to, to pitch this project. And I was like, man, I don't, you know, why are they gonna, there was this sort of moment of self-doubt, you know, what, why would they pick me instead of, you know, I'm, I'm pitching against some of the biggest New York digital agencies for this project. And they picked us. And I, and I realized one of the things about it was that in a lot of ways, small is better than big. And that what people really want is to work with a team that they can trust. And I had pulled together a team and I said, these are the people that you're going to work with, whereas other agencies couldn't say who the people were going to work with, that they would only be sort of staffing that up once they won the pitch. And so, you know, it was a case where, you know, the folks at, at People Magazine had been through this kind of fandango before and knew that the people that were pitching to them from other agencies weren't the people who were going to do the work and really sort of realizing that I'd hit on something here on the power of, of relationship of putting together a well-considered team that was really suited to the project of, of listening to what the client wanted first before serving the internal business needs of, of just kind of 
selling a team, any team. In a way, my, my biggest career highlight there was almost sort of like a, a business and storytelling success more than a, a technical one as, and understanding how an agency could best collaborate with a client company, even one sort of as, as large as this one and as small as my agency was. Do you think you had an advantage maybe in the fact that you are such a small agency, you do have the ability to be flexible and maybe present that more personal interaction with them. Yeah, that was my big learning from this is that um, I was worried that small and personal was a liability, that uh, companies would take more comfort from going with large and in some cases impersonal agencies. And, and I think some people do that or, or sometimes worry. It's like, oh, you know, with a, a small outfit like this, uh, where you're bringing together contractors, how do we know that those people won't just flake out? And what I've learned is actually that when people sign on for a project with, with big media and with the, with the contractors and collaborators that I bring into this, you know, they're choosing the project in ways where, you know, a junior designer or developer who's just assigned to something at a, at a large body shop agency, they actually have less skin of the game in a sense. And so what I realized is it's not just sort of the personal relationship that I'm able to create between the client and my agency, but also within the team that I pull together too, that we really sort of come together with, with purpose. And, um, you know, those were things that I sort of felt instinctively before that first pitch to People magazine. But it was something that really I, I came to realize very explicitly as something sort of special that we'd stumbled on. And Josh, can you tell us what excites you about the future of careers in IT? The future is always exciting, isn't it? It's a, I, I think we're at a, at a moment, too, with technology that's both exciting and profoundly nervous-making. As you said in your intro, what big medium does is, is we really focus on design for what's next. So our particular specialty is, is taking emerging technologies, and but mature enough to go into product, but things like machine learning or uh, voice interfaces all of the kind of emerging things around artificial intelligence. How do you sort of bring that into product? And for the last decade or so, a, a lot of the stuff that we focused on was about mobile. You know, how, how do we take advantage of these supercomputers that are in our pockets and, and handbags and push the, the boundaries of what they're capable of to think about um, how they can provide meaning to not only to businesses, but as we were talking about earlier, to, to customers and to the fabric of our lives. What I've found in the last couple of years, though, is more and more people are wondering what to do about data and about machine learning and all the sophisticated pattern matching that it unlocks. And I, I think that if mobile defined digital product for the last decade, machine learning is already set to define the next. And this is something that I find both super exciting in terms of its opportunity and the power and the, the, the things that we'll be able to do, and also disconcerting in terms of all of the risks of maybe over-designing these things uh, in a way where we maybe uh, 
hope that the machines are smarter than they are and they actually fail in, in important and maybe catastrophic ways or the way that many of us feel now where we're under surveillance by corporations or by governments who are hungry for our data, a general loss of agency, what happens if our jobs are automated out? Lots of really kind of meaningful questions that are emerging due to just the raw power and huge availability of data. So the thing that excites me about this is figuring out how do we use this stuff in the right way? And I think for all of the folks who are listening to your podcast, everyone who's involved in IT, the designers, the developers, the, the managers, how this stuff gets used is, is up to us. And we're at a really exciting moment where we're learning how to use machine learning and artificial intelligence as a design material. And, and what does that mean? You know, I, I tend to think of software as kind of political, ideological. It is ultimately about shaping behavior. That's what software does, yeah. And as a result, it has values cooked into it. And we aren't always necessarily aware of it or, or, or thinking about it, but, but it does. All the decisions that we make as, as a business, as designers, as developers, that are just sort of implicit in, in the decisions that we make get cooked into the software itself or, or is embedded in the data that we're, we're gathering. And so there's, there's always some kind of bias in there. And I think that the opportunity right now is just to be really intentional about the values that we want to put into this software because more and more the algorithm is shaping our daily life. It determines the news that we see. Algorithms determine the products that are surfaced to us or, or even how most of us drive home at the end of the day now. It's becoming so much of the fabric of our lives or cooked into the operating system of our culture that uh, I think really good values and good decisions are, are so important right now at this kind of foundational moment of, of learning to use this stuff. That's exciting to me and terrifying to me, but I, I choose to be optimistic and enthusiastic about it. Yeah. Good. Good to hear anyway. Yes. And <laughs> we're going to go into the reveal round. And we're going to find out a little bit more about you and the way you think. Are you ready for this? All right. Let's give it a try. So what first attracted you to a career in IT? I was a journalist and a filmmaker working for public television in the 90s. And at the time, as a young man, I felt a little bit constrained. There weren't many opportunities to have my own show. It was only you know, a few broadcast hours in the day. And it was expensive. And then in the mid-90s, you know, the web came around. And it was sort of a, a, an opportunity to... You know, anybody could create something. It was very democratic. And also the rules were yet to be written. It wasn't clear yet what this medium was. So both in terms of the, the creativity and kind of democratic nature of it, I was, I was really drawn to it. I, I'm afraid that some of that has been lost in the web in the last few years. What is the best career advice you've ever received? Back in those television days, um, one of my mentors was a, an anchor for the PBS NewsHour. He was a guy who, in my eyes, as, as a young man, had, had certainly arrived. And I remember him telling me, you know, Josh, there is no big time. You never arrive. Every time you reach a goal, 
there's always something new that's just beyond your reach. There's some new corner to turn. And the thing that he said was, you got to, in your work, draw satisfaction from today and be present in the thing that you're making right now. And that, you know, we were talking about that in the context of a broadcast career, but I, I think about it all the time. It's something that's really served me really well. There, there is no big time. And conversely, what is the worst career advice you've ever received? I'm not sure that I've gotten lots of terrible advice, but I'll tell you something that's out there that, that kind of gets under my skin. It's that do what you love idea, which I think is something that, um, you know, there's a reason they call it work. And uh, I think there's always a risk that you're going to sully the thing that you love by turning it into your work. But I think also there's sort of some, there's, there's a, a really sort of profound amount of privilege in that idea that you can just t- sort of craft a work out of something that you already love. I think it's, it's more kind of like find what you love in your work feels a little bit better than this, this thing of just find a side hustle out of what you love. And, and that's another thing It's kind of the, the hustle culture is something that I am not super crazy about, but I, I think that career advice that you find in Pinterest posts in quotes, I think are things that, I tend to avoid maybe, right. I, you know, <laughs> Pinterest, I think needs to have, it's like, there is no big time. That's, yeah. that's the Pinterest quote for you. If you were to begin your career again in today's world, what would you do? I honestly don't know where I'd start. You know, I, I started with web design, you know, hand writing HTML. It was even before CSS. Right. Yep. And it was something that I, I learned myself and and now it feels like to make a website, you're installing a million NPM modules and nobody even understands all the dependencies that are in the thing. It's, it's complicated. But as I think about sort of the through lines about where I've been, I guess I realize it hasn't been about technology. It's, it's been about problem solving. And so as a designer, the work that I have is really about understanding the problem. What's the problem? Where is the information that could provide an answer to it? Who holds that information? How do we, who do we aim to serve in solving this? And, and how can technology best solve that problem? Sometimes in, in non-obvious ways. And I find that that's really been the core of my work is doing that inquiry and then crafting that story around it. The technology then sort of fills in the gaps. So those are the things that have kind of mattered most in my career and have served me well through all kinds of technological changes over the last couple of decades. I think that I would sort of really start by understanding how to do that kind of research and, and inquiry of understanding a problem and, and crafting hypotheses about it rather than just jumping into the tech. What career objectives are you currently focusing on? It's the stuff I was talking about earlier about trying to understand machine learning as a design material. Um, I'm actually starting to write write a book about that is really trying to understand the unusual textures of machine learning and how it wants to be used and and how fundamentally strange and and weird it is. That's the stuff that I'm really working on is what are the strengths and weaknesses of the algorithm and of algorithmic products. And what's the number one non-technical skill that has helped you in your career so far? Well, as you can probably tell from some of my answers, I'm a, I'm a little bit touchy-feely on some of this stuff. And, and I think what I've, I've found is that 
the most impactful things that you can make these days tend to be made by lots of people. And so I think that the best thing that you can do is, is learn how to work well and collaborate with other people. And, and if I can sort of say maybe two skills that are part of that, one is just active listening, you know, to work with people, you need to understand what they care about and, and what motivates them. I think creating consensus and finding a way forward means knowing where people are coming from and, and communicating in a language that is meaningful for them. So it's really listening carefully and understanding others as part of it. And the other part of it is, is that storytelling is how do you craft a compelling vision for, it could be for the individual component of a page, you know, why we're making those decisions here or for an, an overall web page or for the product as a whole. A lot of it is about telling the story that matches the opportunity. Yeah, that's some great points in there, definitely. And what do you do to keep your own career energized? Yeah, it's. Uh, I think we all have some low points sometimes. And I, I find that when I'm my reserves are a little low, I, I get a lot out of exploring the creative process and creative output of, of people, of others. Uh, and especially maybe it, it helps when it's people who aren't in this industry. So I often find museums to be very both soothing and inspiring. I'm, I'm a, a big fan of the Museum of Modern Art here in New York. And I, I just love going through the, the galleries. They've got new galleries now, the whole expanded set of them. And just kind of seeing how the artists have challenged what came before and coming up with, with new solutions or approaches to, to convey information or really feeling, I guess, that they're often working with or emotion or, or sometimes of cultural protest, um, kind of seeing them wrestle. You can, you can often in their works kind of see the path that they followed to try to figure something out. I get a lot from that. I, I find that really energizing. The next question you may partly just answered actually, but what do you do in your spare time away from technology? Going to the museums is something that I, I really enjoy. I'm also a, I'm a runner, and uh, you know one of the things that I did, boy, you know, 20, 25 years ago was create a uh, a running schedule called the Couch to Five K schedule that at this point has helped you know millions of people start running. It's been a passion for a long time. I'm actually I'm turning fifty in a year. And my plan for my 50th birthday is to run a 50K in the 50th state in Hawaii. Uh, so I'm going to be running 31 miles up the side of an active volcano for when I'm 50. That's, that's me. I think, I think it's pretty clear that that is me for trying to deny my own mortality uh, here. But anyway, that's the plan. Right. Okay. And, and Josh, can you share a parting piece of career advice with the IT career energizer audience? Yeah, you know, I think I think overall, there's it's as proud as you may be in your work is is bring humility to it and ask lots of questions and share what you learn. I think that that pairing curiosity and generosity have yielded a lot for me, and I admire it a lot in other people. And I think that's maybe some of the best advice I can give for a career as well as for for being a good human. Is that one of those things that if you find that you are curious, you're probably doing the right thing? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, I think we run into trouble when we decide we've got all the answers. And um, as a designer, I think one thing that I've learned is that 
all design is just a hypothesis and, and you don't know until you actually put something out there and, and try it. And so I think having a real curiosity about your ideas and, and, a, and a willingness to try something dumb or to accept some failure, I think just really helps a lot. Just staying open-minded and in all ways, not just about your work, but about other people really yields a lot. And finally, what's the best way we can find out more about you and connect with you? Visiting my agency's website, bigmedium.com, you'll find uh, information about me and about the work that we do, as well as essays and writings and videos about uh, what's next, uh, what's next for technology and and for this world that we're building with it. Uh, You can also find me on Twitter at bigmediumjosh. Josh, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's been great chatting with you. Oh, Phil, what a pleasure. Thanks so much. And and I I am going to go ahead and say that 233 is my lucky number. (laughs) Hi, Phil here again. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with today's guest. You can find full show notes on the website at itcareerenergizer.com slash e and the number of the episode you've been listening to. If you haven't already subscribed to the show, please make sure that you do so that you get episodes automatically downloaded to your device every Monday. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Thanks for listening to the IT Career Energizer podcast. To find out more about building a successful career in IT, visit itcareerenergizer.com.